Good morning. What a bright, beautiful, crisp, white, snowy morning we have today. And if you, if you got here safely, we're so glad that you did. It's beautiful outside. Just be careful <laughs> on the roads. Pastor and his family are taking a little bit of time off, uh, resting, recuperating, worshiping in another place this morning. And uh, so we want to be praying for our pastor and his family and always just keep them before the Lord. Um, he's a really busy guy serving our church, serving us, and others through his uh, ministry at the hospital, and then, of course, school as well. So please keep Pastor in your prayers. Let's turn to 1 Peter this morning, 1 Peter chapter 2. And in the Pew Bible, if you're using a Pew Bible, that would be uh, page 1014, 1014 in the Pew Bible. We've already worked through... Uh, most of the first eight verses of chapter 2, but let's read verses 1 uh, through 8 of First Peter chapter 2, all right? So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Speak now of a Local uh, of believers in local churches, in the universal church and in local churches. Verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. We are here, a spiritual house. To be a holy priesthood, we are a royal, a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture. Now he's quoting three Old Testament passages. It stands in Scripture. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him, believes in this cornerstone, will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe in this cornerstone. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And for those who have not believed, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. On uh, September 26th of last year, we worked through, that was the last time we were in 1 Peter. We're going through 1 Peter in the, um, in the uh, it'll take us five years plan. So in September of last year, we looked at verses 4 and 5 of this text, We know that God's children, from this text, form a united family. Verse 4, we saw that we habitually draw near to God. Verse 5, we saw that we form a spiritual house. And in verse 5, we also see that we serve as God's priesthood. In verse 4, Peter refers to and describes Jesus Christ. And now in verses 6 through 8, he's going to kind of jump off of that and expand on that. He's going to talk about Jesus Christ. 
as he focuses on Christ in order to remind his readers that Christ alone is God's chosen vessel of salvation, he, 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 he comes back to Christ because for Peter, no matter what he's writing about, it, it comes back to Christ. So he's writing about, in the previous verses, the church and what we are as a church, a united family. And even in talking about that, he still brings us back to Christ. There's another reason he brings us back to Christ. Look at verse 3. He says, If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. We need to understand. You remember he's writing multiple churches, believers in multiple churches. And the, the assumption is that the people in the churches are Christians. Right? There, but there's one assumption as well that maybe not all of them are. Verse 3, he brings that out. Uh, uh, as little children, verse 2, long for the pure spiritual milk that you may grow up in your salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So do these things, grow up in your salvation, if indeed you are saved, is the idea. He's cracking the door open for those in the church who are part of the church who actually aren't Christians after all. They're trusting in something else besides Christ. And so Peter recognizes in these churches that there are probably some who don't know the Lord. And so as he's talking about the church as a spiritual house and so forth, he can't help but get back to the gospel and to bring it out again, just in case there are some in the churches who don't know Christ. And for us this morning, you may be a church member. You may be a deacon. You may be a science school teacher. You may, you may be involved in ministry. And still there's value and logic to asking the question, have I truly trusted Christ? Do, and do I know? The Bible speaks about making our calling and election sure. Rethink it again. Look back on it again. What am I trusting in? Who am I trusting in? Who have I given my life to? And maybe you're here and you'd know, I really haven't given my life to Jesus Christ. Well, this text is a great encouragement for all of us this morning. The point of this text this morning is that Jesus Christ is God's chosen vessel for man's salvation. That our relationship to God and our eternal destiny are determined by our relationship to Christ. Our relationship to God, whether we are his child or not, and our eternal destiny, whether it's heaven or hell, these all are determined by our relationship to Jesus Christ. Am I one who's accepted him or not? Am I one who's trusted him, believed in him for eternal life and forgiveness? Or if I have not, then what does my eternity look like? So that's where this text goes. Let's pray and we'll, we'll dig in this morning, all right? We thank you, Father, for this text and how challenging it is to each one of us. And I pray, Father, that each one of us, I know I have, as I've looked at this text, re-examined my own life. And I pray that each one of us will, whether we claim to know Christ or maybe we're here and we, we haven't thought about this. We haven't thought this through. We haven't reckoned with Christ and haven't made a decision to run to him in faith and repentance. Father, regardless of who we are, regardless of our station in life, regardless of 
whether we're a church member or not, or cause us today to think through Christ and to ask ourselves the question, am I truly a believer? Have I truly bowed my knee to Jesus Christ? And for those who have not, Father, grant humility and open their hearts to Christ today. And for those of us who do know Christ, cause us to recommit our lives to the one who died to provide forgiveness. We ask these things in Christ's name because we love him. Amen. We'll see two things this morning from this text. First of all, God the Father established Jesus Christ as the cornerstone of man's salvation. Let's look at uh, verse 6. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone. So this is a quotation now from Isaiah chapter 28. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him, this cornerstone, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So what Peter does here, he introduces to us in verse 6, for it stands in Scripture. He's going to quote from three different Old Testament texts to provide a little more strength maybe to what he says. In uh, verse 6, he's quoting Isaiah 28, 16. In verse 7, he's quoting Psalm 118, verse 22. In verse 8, he's quoting Isaiah 8, 14. Each of these Old Testament quotations speak of Israel's Messiah, this coming one who will provide forgiveness. This coming Messiah speaks of him as a stone. And so Peter's pulling out that imagery here. Each of them alludes to the fact that man's destiny is determined by his attitude to this stone. Our eternal destiny is determined by how we view this stone. These are all prophetic Old Testament texts that Peter's looking to. In Isaiah 28, verse 16, quoted here in verse 6 of 1 Peter 2, God promises that he will reject rebellious leaders in Israel and that he will establish a chosen and precious cornerstone instead. By his quotation, Peter points out two things about Jesus, the living stone. First, Jesus is indeed the chief cornerstone. You see this word cornerstone uh, in verse in verse 6? So what is a cornerstone? What exactly is that? Well, we see a couple things here. By Peter speaking of him as the cornerstone, A cornerstone, first of all, provides stability to a building. It was the first thing set down. A cornerstone was a large, durable, and a a huge stone of great quality that you could put the weight of the building on this one stone. It was that strong. Some of these were absolutely huge. I mean, huge. These stones also would determine and control the lines of the building. You would set a a cornerstone in place, and it would determine the lines of the building. The the design of the building is determined by the shape of this stone. Everything sets upon it. It determines everything related to this structure. The Apostle Paul speaks of Christ in similar ways. He says in Ephesians chapter 2, Verses 19 and 20. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens. He's talking to believers. You're no longer foreigners and aliens, 
but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. You are not foreigners. You're members of God's family, is his point. And he says this, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. That same idea that the church, this church, is to be built on, must be built on, the cornerstone of Christ. He is the one who bears the weight. He is the one who determines the lines. In other words, he determines the ministry direction. What this church looks like is determined by this stone, by Christ. We look to him and the word for wisdom, for direction regarding the ministry of our church. Why? Because he's there to provide that direction. I find it amazing when I read liberal religious leaders who deny everything about Christ but yet claim to be Christians. You're going to find this in churches and among religious leaders. Many of them are liberals, meaning they they deny the historicity of Christ. Jesus didn't really exist. No such person as a literal Jesus. The the fictitious person of Jesus Christ is there simply to teach us moral lessons like Aesop's fables. And if we obey those moral lessons, then we're Christians. So to them, Christianity is based upon the the moral lessons voiced by a a non-historic person. Jesus didn't really exist. No, folks, that's wrong. Jesus Christ was an historic person. God took on human flesh. God, the second son, became a man and lived on this earth. And when you read the Gospels, you read the true stories and the true accounts of Jesus Christ, what he did and what he said. And he establishes what salvation, our salvation, is laid upon him. He's the foundation stone of it. And the church and our Christian lives are determined by him, not by us. Let me say that again. If he's the one who is the stone, he determines how we live. We don't do that. We don't think in terms of, I'll do what I want. I'll live as I want. I'll spend my time, money, and energy however I please. I might come to church on Sundays, but Monday through Saturday is mine to do as I please. Folks, that's not biblical teaching. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of our church. He dictates who we are, what we do, what we think, how we live our lives as a church body. He is also the cornerstone of our individual lives. If we've trusted him as Lord and Savior, he dictates how we live. And let me just say as an aside, living for Christ is the best way to live. It's the most satisfying way to live. You may not feel that way. You may not think that. And the world certainly doesn't think that. Living how I want to live, that's, that's the way to go. And look around us and just see the decay, the problems, the hardships people are facing because they're living based on their own thinking. 
No, the best way to live. The most satisfying way to live. The most valuable way to live. So when we're, you know, when we're in our deathbeds, we look back and say, my life had real value. I was able to accomplish something that I'll take with me that has eternal value. That only comes when we follow Christ. I want to be careful not to miss something else here. It's clear from the rest of Scripture that Jesus is the only way of eternal life. Now, I know there is the teaching that there are many ways. There are many doors that lead to heaven. Whatever religion you are, as long as you're faithful at it or as long as you're committed to it, it doesn't matter what you believe. As long as you're committed, God's okay with that. That is not what the Bible teaches. I know it's common thinking. You may have thought that. You may still think that. The Bible does not teach that. Jesus says in John 14, 6, so unless we're going to discount the words of Jesus, we have to listen to this. I am the way, and you know this text probably, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now this is really absolute language, and in our world, we don't like absolutes. There are no absolutes, which of course that's an absolute statement, so it really doesn't work. Right? I am the way to eternal life. I am the truth. You want truth? It's right here. I am the source of eternal life. No one. This is the language. This is the Greek. And every translation translates it this way because there's no other way to translate it. No one comes to the Father except through me. There aren't many doors. There is one door. It is Jesus Christ. And all the other doors are locked. There's one. And you come to Christ. You get to the Father in his heavenly abode through Christ. Not a very popular message, but it's the truth. Now, I think Peter alludes to this fact twice when he uses the word chosen. Look at verse 4. Speaking of Christ, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Look at verse 6. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. The idea here is that there is one cornerstone of salvation, only one, and God has chosen it to be Jesus Christ. In other words, there aren't many doors. There's one, there's one door. There's one cornerstone that the gospel is set upon, and it's Jesus Christ. It's interesting here, look at verse 4, how man and God view Christ differently. Notice verse 4. And as you come to him, living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. This is interesting. Jesus is precious in the sight of God. Men... Mankind views Christ very differently than God does. Uh, Man rejects him. For God, he is chosen and precious. Man repudiates Christ. To, to, To man, Christ is of no value. He's of no worth. Now, this is true in our world. 
I mean, it's clearly has always been the case, but it's certainly clear in our world. No one thinks anything of Christ. He is easily shoved aside. He's worthless and inconsequential. But to God the Father, he is chosen and precious. Precious meaning he is prized, honored. He is of inestimable value. Things are precious for different reasons. Some things are precious because of their intrinsic worth. Gold. Silver. Diamonds. You know, if, if, you're, if you're making earrings, it's not something I have done a lot of. Maybe some of you do. I don't know. If you make earrings, you can make them out of gold. You can make them out of aluminum foil. Ladies, which one do you want? I want that aluminum foil. Man, that's awesome. It's worth about 0.02 cents. I mean, there's nothing of value there. And you can shape the aluminum foil. It's very bendy. You know, it's very malleable. You can move it and adjust. And you can probably put them in a similar shape. So here are the two sets of earrings. Solid gold or solid aluminum foil. What do you want? What do you want hanging from your ears or your neck or whatever? Yeah, you don't want the aluminum foil. And I should ask for a raise of hands. None of you want that. Because it's worthless. So some things are, are valued because of their intrinsic worth. Other things are valued because of, of what they accomplish. You take rubber and plastic and, uh, and aluminum, for instance. And in and of themselves, those aren't very expensive and they're not very desirable. Rubber, plastic, aluminum. But you take that rubber, plastic, and aluminum, and you use that, and you pull them together, and you build yourselves a $500,000 Lamborghini. Suddenly, that plastic and rubber is worth something. Not because of the intrinsic value of those things, but because of what's just been created. This valuable, gorgeous vehicle that none of us will ever be able to afford. So all you guys in midlife crisis, don't bother even thinking about it because you can't afford it. And if you tried to, your wife would shoot you. Your midlife crisis would be over with a funeral. Well, folks, Jesus Christ is precious for both reasons. Because of who he is, because of what he's done. He's precious Because as the Nicene Creed states, he is light of light, very God of very God, being of one substance with the Father. He is God. He is precious because of who he is. He is God of very God, creator, sustainer of all things. The one who humbled himself, came to earth, took on humanity, and died for sinners. And that's the second reason he is precious, because of what he's done. Sinners that we are, we need a Savior. Without a Savior, our destiny is sealed, and it is horrific. I know the world doesn't want to talk about that either. You know, the book of Ecclesiastes talks about going to a party or going to a funeral. There's a verse that says, going to a funeral is better. Because it causes us to remember our mortality. Going to a party, loads of fun. But you don't leave there changed. In fact, you leave there maybe more caught up in your, your life 
and, and the fun of this world. Going to a funeral, if you really go and think about what's in front of you, you're forced to think about, that's my future. Tomorrow, the next day, 10 years from now, I can't avoid it. That's where I'm, that, that box is where I'm headed. And so Ecclesiastes says, the author of Ecclesiastes says, a funeral is better because it causes you to examine your life and hopefully prepare for the next life. Well, Jesus Christ is precious because of who he is and because of what he's done. He took upon human flesh, God the Son, lived a sinless life, died on the cross, bore our sins, your sins. He bore your sins. He bore then the punishment for those sins. The wrath of God was poured upon him. He took hell for each and every one of us. Now, there's a human aspect, a human part of this, and that is faith. I must trust in him. Or I can't take advantage of his death on the cross. But he is precious because he died on that cross and provided a way of forgiveness. Hope he's precious to you today. If you're a Christian, he should be. He should be the the cornerstone of your life. Secondly, now, man's response to Jesus, the cornerstone, determines his eternal destiny, which really is where Peter is going. Uh, He can't help talk but talk about this. Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone, our destiny is determined by how we relate to this cornerstone. In the remainder of this section, Peter describes how human beings respond to Christ. No one can escape this chosen cornerstone. No one uh, can avoid it. One way or another, every human being makes a decision regarding Christ. Even if a person's decision is, I won't think about him. That's your decision. So when you stand before God, accountable to God, and your response is, I didn't think about Christ, your eternal future is determined right there. Everyone, everyone's destiny is determined by the relationship to him. Now, there are two categories that Peter brings out in this text. Look at your Bibles. Look at verse 6 again. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, speaking of Christ. And whoever believes in him, believes in him, will not be put to shame. So the honor is to you who believe. So there's one category of, 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 of person, believers. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become a cornerstone and a st- stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So he's taken the entire human race and divided the human race into two categories. Believers in Christ and rejectors of Christ. We take everyone in this room... We're divided up into those two. It's interesting how, how the Bible speaks of people. With all the ways we've categorized people in our world, it boils down to these two categories. Forget all the rest of them. Forget skin color, forget, forget ethnic, forget sexual preference, forget all that stuff. It boils down to these two categories. Believers and unbelievers. You go to Walmart, and you gather everyone in Walmart... And you divide them up into two categories. And these are the categories. Believers and unbelievers. Let's think in those terms for just a few minutes. Those who trust in Christ, those who are believers, will experience Christ's blessing. He says that here now. Whoever believes in him, verse 6, will not be put to shame. 
so that the honor is for you who believe. Now, before we go further, we need to define the word believe. It's used a lot, tossed around a lot. Misdefined, misunderstood often. Belief, first of all, involves knowledge. There's content here. Jesus is God. Jesus is the master of everything. Jesus became a human being and died upon a cross bearing the sins of the human race. Jesus rose again, and he's coming again. Those are some of the basic facts of the gospel. Now, if I believe them, yeah, I think that happened. I think Jesus is God, master of the universe, and I I think he came to earth and died on the cross. I, I believe that historically happened. I believe he rose again, as amazing as that sounds. And I believe he's coming again. I've kind of learned those things over the years, maybe through osmosis. My family taught it and said it, and it came across in Christmas stories over the years. I like the little drummer boy and all the little things, all the little hints of Christianity. I've gleaned all this stuff over the years. I believe those facts. That makes me a Christian. No, it doesn't. Satan believes those facts. James says the demons believe these facts, and they're scared to death. They tremble, James says. So you can believe all the facts. Just take all the facts of the gospel, just like a test. Question number one, question number two, question number three. You can believe all the facts of the gospel. Satan believes them. And by the way, Satan probably knows more of the facts than we do. He was there. Believing the, the factualness of the facts. That's a weird way of saying it. I realize that, but you get my point. Believing those things to be facts is not enough. And we have many people, there are many people who've grown up in the church and know the facts. And if you say, are you a Christian? Yes, because I, I know these things to be true. Now, don't get me wrong. We have to know those things to be true. They are facts. We have to believe them to be facts. Satan does. We do too. But there's more to it than that. It's not just believing that Jesus is God. It's believing in the fact that he is my God. Not just the fact that he is master of the universe, but he is my master. He is Lord over me. Not just the fact that he died for, for sins, but that he died for my sins. And that I trust him as the one who bore my punishment. And I've asked him to forgive me based upon what he has done. It's a personal thing. This is what Satan will never do. He's never going to bow the knee to Jesus Christ and say, you are my savior, you are my master. The demons will never do that. But this is what saving faith is. Now he says two things. Oh, by the way, let me just stop for a second. This is a great time to examine your faith. Is it just the facts? Or is it the facts and I absolutely, positively have trusted in the Christ uh, of these facts and trusted him to be my 
sit the one who bore my sin and the one who is the master and controller of my life. What kind of faith do you have? By the way, the Bible does talk about two kinds of faith. James talks about it. Jesus talks about it in the Gospel of John. Two kinds of faith. Um, non-saving faith and saving faith. The one is, I know all the facts. The other is, I know all the facts, and I absolutely have trusted in Jesus Christ to forgive my sins. I know I'm a sinner. I know I have no other way of salvation. I've trusted in him. Two kinds of faith. What kind do you have today? Now, Peter states that those who believe in Christ, well, he says two things about them. First of all, looking at your text, Verse 6, or yeah, verse 6 toward the end. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. First, if you've trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you'll never be ashamed. You'll never be disappointed. You'll never be disgraced or let down. But, Pastor, so many Christians around the world and throughout church history have been persecuted and, and murdered because of their Christian stand. Absolutely. And after they were murdered, where did they go? I've talked to Christians in persecuted countries, and they are proud of their sons and daughters. Yes, my son died for the Christian faith. I'm so proud. He did that. As opposed to, I don't want my son or daughter being persecuted. Let's yank them out of that situation. Let's put them in a place of safety. Now, I want my son or daughter to stand for Jesus Christ in the world in which we live. And I'm not talking about here in America. I'm talking about other countries. I would rather see my son or daughter stand for Christ. And if they die for it, they enter Christ's presence. That's not a problem, is it? If they live for it, if they live through it, wonderful. And I'm praying that they will because I love them. But if they die, enter Christ's presence, I'm not sad about that. I mean, on one level I am, but ultimately I'll see them again. Folks, if you trust Christ, you will never be disappointed. You'll never be put to shame. Everything in this life will disappoint you. Everything will. You'll disappoint yourself. You'll disgrace yourself. This is how, this is how we're sinners. And things in life, people will disappoint you and fail you. Friends and family will disappoint and fail you. Your job or your career, that, that doesn't always go the way you want. And sometimes there's disappointment. Financial success. Your 401k may not keep doing this. It may be doing more of this. And you're disappointed. And maybe you're getting close to retirement. And this is, you know, this is not good. You're going to be a greeter in Walmart until you're 95 because your 401k did this. You can't trust those things. Because none of them are sure. But there's someone who is sure, who will never disgrace It is Christ. He goes on to say that if you're a Christian, he places you in a position of honor. Notice verse 7. So the honor is for you who believe. There's honor. I think probably he's really considering the, the believers here. Do you remember the believers he's writing are suffering persecution? I mean, some of them are dying for the faith. Some of them have lost their jobs. If they have businesses, no one goes to their place of business now that they've turned to Christ. 
Their children are harassed. Their wives are harassed in the marketplace. Some of them may die for Christ. And what does he say to them? He says, even though life is difficult and harsh, Jesus will never disappoint you. He will never disappoint you. Even though you're being treated like the scum of the earth by others, remember that the one whose estimation is the most valuable, God, he honors you. And he will honor you. And Peter says that to us too. When you're being mistreated, when you're suffering, when things aren't going, aren't going wonderful, remember that you can rely on the Lord and he holds you in a place of honor. Whose estimation do you, do you want most? I want people to think best of me. I want God to think best of me. And I'm going to do what I can to make people pleased with me. You know how fickle that's going to be? I want to do things that will make God pleased. Secondly, he says those who accept Christ will experience blessing. Secondly, those who reject Christ experience judgment, verses 7 and 8. In verses 7 and 8, Peter describes the plight of those who don't believe. So here we are. I've got to deal with this stone right here. And I either believe or I I don't believe. If I believe, I'm in a place of honor. I'll never be disappointed. If I don't believe, I reject, what's that going to look like? First, the unbeliever underestimates Christ's importance. Look at verse 7. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You've rejected the stone. The very one who is the cornerstone, you've rejected. This is the attitude of the unbeliever. This is a quotation now of Psalm 118, verse 22. Peter's point uh, in this quotation is to show that those who repudiate and reject God's messianic stone fail to realize that he is the only one who can deliver and save. You refuse this stone? There is no other way of forgiveness. There is no other way of eternal life. The stone unbelievers throw aside is God's one and only ordained stone. Unbelievers totally underestimate who Christ is and what he's done on the cross. Man, with all of his education, with all of his accomplishments, with all of his advancements, you know that the sins talked about throughout the scriptures are still the sins we fight today? My grandson Asa has a watch. He can call his mom. This is like Dick Tracy. And if you remember Dick Tracy, he was a little before my time, actually, to date myself. He was a little before my time, but I remember the watch. I do remember Star Trek. Beam me up, Scotty. And every one of us has a mechanism in our pocket. We do basically the same thing. For a while, it looked just like that, the flip phone. Now we've evolved further. No flip phones. They might come back. But anyway, bottom line is, you know, beam me up, Scotty can happen any moment of any day. Please pick up some bread. And if we're too lazy to say it, we'll just text it. Please pick up some bread. 
with all of our advancements, with all, with all of our education, you know that one of the biggest problems is not the lack of information. It's, it's the lack of the ability to sift through it with wisdom. You can go on the internet and learn about anything. You want to do gallbladder surgery on your spouse? It's probably in there. <laughs> I can't afford it. Let's Google it. Gallbladder. Okay, first take a really sharp knife and cut here. Ready, honey? You can probably figure that out. Tons of information, but not a lot of wisdom as to how to filter through the false information and the true information. We, we just have so much. We're so advanced, and we're so smart. And yet, if you look at the scriptures, we struggle with the same exact sins we've always struggled with. We haven't changed a bit. Our sin now is just much more sophisticated. With all of our education and accomplishments and advancements, man is completely wrong about Christ. He's always been, and he always will be. Many women toss out Christ as if he was nothing. They ignore his word. They rebel against his standards of holiness. They reject his offer of salvation, which is insanity. But they do it every day. And they deny his station of lordship, the fact that he is Lord over everything. Secondly, the unbeliever brings himself to ruin because he rejects Christ and his word. Keep reading now. Look at verse 8. And... This cornerstone that's been rejected now by those who don't believe, that cornerstone is a stone of stumbling. People trip over him and fall into damnation is the idea. He's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. He's offensive. I don't like what he says. I don't like what he stands for. I'm not going to follow him. I'm going to go my own direction. The unbeliever trips over Christ and falls into ruin and destruction By rejecting God's stone, he falls into judgment. Christ is like a huge stone in the middle of a a path. If you've ever done any um, hiking, sometimes you'll find that there's a tree in the middle of the path and the roots are there and you've got to be careful not to trip and kill yourself. Or there's a huge boulder and you've got to go one side or the other unless you're going to try and climb over it, which you wouldn't do unless you're crazy. But you've got to deal with the rock. You've got to address the rock. You go in one direction or the other. That's exactly why uh, Peter categorizes people as believers and unbelievers. You go one direction, you follow Christ. You go the other, you reject Christ. But you've got to deal with the stone in the middle of the path. You can't avoid him. Notice that According to Peter, stumbling over Christ occurs when a person rejects the teachings of the Word of God. He says, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, they stumble because they disobey the Word of God. So you want truth, and it's right here. You disobey this, and you're going to stumble over Christ. What's really interesting is this last thing. The unbeliever's disobedience to the word ensures, ensures destruction and damnation. Look at verse 8 again. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. 
They stumble because they disobey the word of God, the gospel and the word of God. As they were destined to do. In other words, if you disobey the word of God, you are destined. Here's a predetermined description of of your future. You disobey the word of God and you will stumble over this stone. And fall into destruction is the idea. So here is Christ. A huge boulder in the middle of the path. And you must reckon with him. You can't avoid him. You must make a decision regarding him. Will you repent of your sin and trust in him? And if you do, you'll be honored and never be ashamed of that decision or of Christ. Or will you reject the word of God, the gospel, and the communication of scripture? And if you do that, stumbling, falling into destruction. What are you going to do with this stone? Now, Jesus says the exact same thing in John chapter 3. Let me read this. John 3, 17 and 18, Jesus says this. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. God did not send Jesus, the father did not send the son into the world to bring about our condemnation. Oh, God did all this just to send us to hell. That was his plan. No. Jesus says, God did not send his son to the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The reason Christ was sent was so that everyone here and everyone out there would be with God forever, would be saved. He goes on. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, which we've just seen. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. In other words, the the future is already determined for the person who rejects the word of God, who rejects the gospel of God. They're already condemned. It's not that condemnation will come later. I mean, it will. Stand before God. There will be judgment. But their condemnation is so sure and so set in stone that they're condemned already just because they will not believe Christ. Where are we this morning? Where are you this morning? You have to deal with this stone. And you can leave and say, I'll deal with them later. I've got wild oats to sow. I'll deal with them later. I don't want to deal with them at all. That's your decision. That's rejection. There are only two. There aren't three categories. Believers, unbelievers, and the undecided. And if they die in their indecision, they still get to go to heaven. That is not how the world is divided. According to Peter and the rest of Scripture, there are two. Believers and unbelievers. And if you're not a believer, if you've not bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, then you're an unbeliever. You're one who's rejected. So where do you stand today with this cornerstone, with Christ? With this one that you can't avoid? You may say, I I know I'm a Christian because I come to church. That's not in this text or any other text that talks about the gospel. Church is something you get involved in after you deal with Christ. And after you trust in him. I'm a member, so I... 
pastor heard my testimony, so I must be a Christian because I had the right words to say. Well, good. But is, was your heart really in... Um, listen, I know of pastors who've realized in their ministries, I really never really did trust Christ. And they trusted Christ as pastors. We had a deacon in, in Illinois. He was a deacon... He was a consistent deacon. He was voted in every single time because he was a really good guy. And then eventually he went through kind of a rebellious streak and then realized, you know, I grew up in the church. I grew up with a a Christian family. I've heard the facts, the gospel all my life. I thought I was a Christian. I'm not. I'm not. I just kind of took these things because it was in my culture. I've never personally bowed my knee to Christ, turned away from my sin, and trusted him as my Savior. I've never done it. And then he did. He's one of the best deacons we had. A really godly man. You might be here as a church member saying, I'm a Christian. Let me just encourage you to examine it. Make sure. Why not make sure? Why not rethink it? And if you're this morning and you... You realize that I, I really am not sure. Or I am sure. I've never dealt with Christ. Do it today. Now you may have another 10 or 15 or 20 or 40 years ahead of you, but you may have another 5 minutes ahead of you. So don't assume you got the 40 years. If the Spirit of God's tugging on your heart, run to Christ today. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for this text. It is hard to read this. It is a little bit hard to think about this. We don't want to think about this choice of forgiveness or destruction. There may be some here. Some of us maybe have trusted Christ and are truly believers, but we're not living our life for him. We don't see him as precious as we ought, as you do, Father. Cause us to see him as precious and to give him our lives in every respect. In those areas where we're, we, are one, we want to hold a certain sin or type of sin to our own hearts and do what we want in that area of our life, cause us to give over that area to Christ. Father, there may be some here who are not Christians, membered church members or not. Father, reveal to them where they stand with you and provide humility and grant repentance and faith today. We thank you for Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. If you need to talk to anyone after the service, I'll be around. Matt Domsick would be happy to talk. If we can talk and help in any way, please please let us do that. All right?